Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples returned, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, the temple has been under construction for 46 years. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking to the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw and believed me. Make sure I'm on the right page here. Nope. The signs that he was doing. But Jesus on this part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to testify about anyone for he himself knew what was in everybody, everyone. This is the word of God to the people of God. Thank you. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, that through your words for us this day, we would continue to be guided by your good news, that we would find your spirit in your son as we continue this journey of Lent, ever drawing towards the cross. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, this Lent, we have been journeying and exploring the good news, right? The good news of Jesus, exploring this message that Jesus brought to the world. And, and as we've explored it, we've seen the ways in which the good news feels good. And we've seen the ways in which the good news, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as good. It doesn't necessarily feel bad, but it, just, it may not fill us with the joy that we want it to. However, in today's passage, it's less a struggling of the nature of good news, and it's more about what is happening and thereby what the good news means for us as we live our lives. And at face value, as we look at this passage, we see many familiarities and many commonalities that we see all throughout the Gospels, that we read in the good news about Christ. It is this idea and concept for Christ to meet in his ministry that makes us ponder who we are and how we live our faith. The part we often wrestle with the most is this outward display that Christ offers of seemingly anger and frustration about what is happening at the heart of this passage. I mean, he's visibly angry, so much so that he actually acts on his anger, flipping the tables, whipping the animals out of the temple, condemning the practices that are happening. 
And so we continue to look at this narrative that we began to explore last week as we explored this idea of what it looks like to focus our mind on things of the divine versus the things of the physical. And so here today we jump, we, we drop from Mark into John and we come to this very different gospel from the gospel of Mark. And it helps us to look and see when this is happening. We're reminded Jesus is in Jerusalem, it is the Passover, and yet we're in John 2. So John is not a synoptic gospel, it's not a chronological gospel. And John, as, as the writer of John is writing, he has a very specific intention in the stories that he chooses the Gospel of John broken down into these two sections, the, the book of signs and the book of sayings. And right now we're in the book of signs. We're in the early part. And so John is presenting all these signs of Jesus, that Jesus is this son of God. And even so, to read the Gospel of John, we see John's purpose in writing in John 20. When John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. And so John notes, he's like, friends, I'm not telling you everything. Because that would probably take an entire encyclopedia. But what I'm doing is I'm giving you very specific stories to help you know and understand that this man is the Messiah. This man is the Son of God. This man offered signs, offered visions, offered sayings that help us to know that he is not only God, but the work that God is doing for us. And so, and so John portrays this Messiahship of Christ. However, John also comes from a very interesting background because the earliest notes, the earliest writings that we believe we have from the Gospel of John begin in about 70 A.D., right around the time that this temple, this temple that is being written about right in this passage is destroyed by the Romans. But you see, the final form of the Gospel of John does not really become the final form until about the year 90 or 100 A.D., and so we see as this gospel, this story of Christ is being developed, as it's being written, as it's being recorded, there is so much of this tension between the way and nature of Christ and God and the way in which this experience of God is met here on earth. And so we look at passages like this one and we can, we can very clearly see why a passage like this sticks out for the gospel writer. When he is portraying Jesus as the son of God, the Messiah, right? Jesus, uh, the story begins with us hearing that Jesus is in, in Jerusalem for the Passover. And if we look at some of the other chronological gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, we see this at the end of those chapters. Jesus has come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Jesus is doing ministry. It is probably Tuesday or Wednesday of Holy Week. We are not there yet, friends. And yet we get this story of Jesus going into the temple where we enter this scene and Jesus walks into what we would consider the outer court and he sees the money changers. And between verses 14 and 15, we can almost imagine the frustration in Jesus's mind. And then he takes action, right? We read right there in verse 15 where we see that he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle, all these animals that have been brought in for sacrifice 
that these money changers are selling so that people can, quote unquote, get closer to God. And he also poured out the money of the money changers and overturned the tables. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus walks into my church and he just dumps the offering plate over, I, I, I don't know what I would do in that point in time. <laughs> It's not so much as the offering plate. It's more the way in which it's being treated. You see, Jesus conveys his disappointment about what these people have done with God's house. They've turned God's house into a veritable marketplace. They've turned God's house into this place where you need to engage in this act outside in order to even feel welcomed inside. Because the temple is meant to be the place where God is. It's the place of God. Right in every temple era in Judaism, whether it's the temple of Solomon that was destroyed before the Babylonian exile, or whether it's this temple that was built after the Israelites had returned that lasts until the Romans destroy it, or even if it is this figurative temple, we see that this is where God is experienced. This is supposed to be a place where you're able to come and experience who God is. It holds this significant, it holds the true nature of God's connection with people. And as Jesus walks in, he sees that vision distorted, corrupted, And it's that warning that we see in verse 17 echoed as we learned this morning in our Sunday school class that your pastor had to look up from Psalm 69. The zeal for your house will consume me. And then this emphasis, the me being Jesus, the your being those who are consuming this house. We see this passage and we think to ourselves, as I saw in a video earlier this week, that this temple is where heaven meets earth. The temple was born from a meaning of God's presence, this concept of heaven we know today, and meeting humanity, this conceptualized idea of earth and creation. Where heaven meets earth. The fact that Jesus is calling out the money changers for their actions of decentering the focus of the temple away from God and on their own greed, on their own uh, ambitions, on what they want is what ultimately sends Jesus over the edge. And Jesus in his calling here and his actions calls out the good news to make sure that we are centering our faith on God. It calls us to consider those ways in which we ourselves place barriers before God working in our lives and working in the life of the church. Ultimately, as we come to find out, this passage calls us to note the disconnect that we or that the Israelites have allowed to happen between God and creation. The barriers that they have placed in the way. And for us today, we run the risk of falling prey to this same temptation of this temple practice. The good news calls us to focus our faith and spirit on Christ and Christ's desires for the world within this promise of God's kingdom. Because notice the response that the money changers and the people in the temple give, right? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. 
And what's their response? In the nearby standard, the version that we have in front of us, it says, Then the Jews then said, The temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three? Now here's a, a translation issue, because friends, this temple was built in about the year 520 uh, B.C., um, and, and, and so 46 years would mean that it was actually started in like the year... Four, uh, I'm bad at math, so like the year 15 maybe? I don't like the year 15 B.C.? Um, but I think a better understanding of this is like they're trying to say, Jesus, it took 46 years for this temple to be built. There's evidence that we had that it took a while for this thing to be built. And, and they're asking, you're telling us to destroy this temple and you're going to build it back up in three days. I mean, the idea seems unreasonable, right? I mean, imagine if we destroyed this church building, how long would it take us to rebuild Jesus wants us to stop thinking about the physical. And when we think about places like the temple, our bodies, our lives, he wants us to focus them and to consider their connection to the spiritual. Why? Because Jesus is the temple. The lesson that we learned last week, that we began last week of this difference and this looking at the divine and the humanity, or the divine and the physical that we heard with Peter. All of us are called to think of these things. Right? This is not a call to somehow set restrictions on what we can and cannot do in church. Don't, don't hear that from this message. Right? But it calls us to consider the spiritual as we seek to live out our faith. It calls us to consider the resources and tools and how they are used in our faith. Are we using them to bring people to God? Or are we placing barriers in front of others before they can experience it? The physical ambitions that get in the way are greed for the things of the world. The greed of hoarding money. The greed of power and ambition that we place on faith. The greed even of how we use faith holiness, and even piety to keep others from having that heaven-on-earth experience. That is what drives Jesus' frustration in this time. And all of us are guilty of these things in our modern understanding of church. We can fall right back into the trap of that second temple era of Judaism where we think people seemingly have to accomplish something in order to experience God. No, friends, God's love is free and for everyone. God calls us to great, wonderful, and amazing things. Jesus is calling us to destroy our temples because the temples, they get in the way of being able to live out our faith to its truest potential. They get in the way of us being able to do that work that God calls us to do. Friends, if we do not destroy our temples, then there is no resurrection. The resurrection means nothing because we refuse to let Jesus in. We refuse to let Jesus do the work that we are called to do. The church has become filled with money changers. The church has become filled with all of these things that we think have to happen in order for someone to be faithful. That that all of these things that someone has to do in order to experience God. That somebody has to do in order to just be beloved by God. 
Friends, there's a reason that people don't want to come to church today. There's a reason that people are leaving the church in mass droves. There are reasons that people would rather be at a coffee shop on Sunday morning, that they'd rather be at their kids' soccer games. It is because we have built these barriers in the church. We have made church so inaccessible that no one wants to be here. They don't even want to deal with the money changers anymore. Friends, Christ is knocking on that door. He is ready to flip our tables. He is ready to show us, to tell us, friends, destroy your temples. I will rebuild them because when you focus on my temple, I will do wonderful and amazing work for you. Because this is supposed to be the place that we experience heaven on earth. If we can't experience it anywhere else in the world, if it feels lost in any way, shape, or form, we know that we can come into this sanctuary and we know that God is present with us. We know that God is here this morning. Amen? Amen. We know that the Spirit has filled us. Amen? Amen. And so if we can't create a space where other people feel that, and friends, what are we even doing here? What are we even doing here? If we're stopping people before they even get to the door, if people don't feel comfortable, you know, we're going to celebrate communion today. And I often think communion just becomes the greatest example for just about anything that happens in church. Why? Because the only thing we as a church do is set the table. We have some wonderful, loving people who come and they, they put the juice, they put the bread, they put the cup, they, they put it on the table and, and we make it look nice and we kind of arrange it so that we can see everything. And then you know what? Even myself, even though I'm up here doing the liturgy and the prayers, friends, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. Because all we do is set the table. Christ welcomes us. Christ invites us. Christ brings us to the table. Christ, the work of God's grace is present at the table. That's what this is about. There is no barrier when, there, when this is here. And there is no barrier when God is present in the world. And so we ask ourselves, what temples, what things have we built up that need to be destroyed? I'm not, I'm not saying don't hear it. Pastor is not saying I do not want to get a call from the SPRC chair or my DS or even my bishop tomorrow saying, Andrew, why did you tell them that they have to destroy the church building? Please do not hear that. Metaphorically, Betty, don't call me tomorrow. <laughs> Friends, we just need to welcome, we just need to know that Christ is here. Let that be the story of this place. And even more so, we need to know that Christ is not confined to this temple, to this sanctuary, to this place. Because people are never going to feel welcome here if we do not make them feel welcome every place the temple of Christ is. What are the temples we need to destroy to create room for Christ's spirit? What, what tables does Christ need to turn over in your life? What coins do you need to hear clink on the ground so that the work of God in Jesus Christ can happen right here in this community at all times? Amen. Amen.